Welcome to Stage Blather, a weekly podcast about theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 7 Fighting with Images. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat. Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far with a tuneless piano and a painted guitar. This week's show is going to be less cheerful than previous week's shows have been, and I make no apologies for that, uh, but I think I should flag it up to begin with. And the reason it'll be less cheerful is because uh, I want to talk about affect versus effect, and I want to talk particularly about the ways in which images affect us, and I'm going to make special reference to two images. The first is of Aylan Kurdi, the young Syrian boy who washed up on a beach in Turkey, and whose the image of his dead body was used as an icon for the broader debate surrounding uh, the refugee, what was referred to at the time as the refugee crisis, um, and broader debates around immigration in the United Kingdom at the time and now, and the recent poster that has been unveiled by Nigel Farage, the uh, leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, which depicts a long line of people waiting to get into, we presume, the the European Union, uh, with the legend breaking point over the top of it. There are other events that have happened in uh, in Britain this week, which I think also lend a certain pertinence to this debate, but it is something I wanted to talk about anyway. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to talk about it was because I've been to a conference this week. Uh, those of you who are academics listening to this can maybe skip the next two minutes because I'll have to explain what a conference is to anybody who's not an academic. Um, just because I think it's it's quite a, a it's a bit of a weird concept, uh, an academic conference. So I, I feel the need to to explain it, uh, but th- in which the topic of affect kept coming up and the topic of images kept coming up. Now, conferences. Uh, a lecturer's job is generally split into three. There are differences, but I think this is the the normal model where a third of your job is teaching, a third of your job is administration, and a third of your job is research. Research tends to be the most um, closely policed because it is the one that is most easily quantifiable. If you want to know what kind of teacher somebody is, then yes, of course, you ask their students and you conduct the national student survey. That is not an exact science and in, in many ways it's quite a, a, um, a blunt instrument. Um, administration, you know, you want to know how good an administrator somebody is, I suppose you try to find out whether their department is working or not, but of course that's not uh, an efficient way of doing it. But if you want to know what kind of a researcher somebody is, you just read the books and articles that they publish, because that's what research is. It is the publications that you produce in line with your research specialisms. And every four years, a university is subjected to what's called a REF, which is a research excellence framework, which is a way the university sends off all of its publications within the last four years to a centrally organised body. That body then judges those publications and gives them a star rating. And the university is then awarded public funds based on the amount of uh, high star rating research that it has produced. So academics are always under pressure to produce more research. And conferences are one of the ways in which research can be stimulated. A conference is generally a bunch of academics will get together and they will decide to host a conference at a university or at, at some kind of public um, place. And they will choose a topic for that conference. They will then send out what's called a call for papers, which is uh, sent out to mailing lists and individuals working within higher education uh, in the UK and abroad, of course. Um, inviting people to to contribute to the conference and people if they do want to contribute they will then send off uh, applications and they'll be accepted or rejected 
and so on. Uh, I organised a conference quite recently in May about Greek tragedy, um, or actually it was just on tragedy, and it was in Glasgow at the Citizens Theatre in conjunction with this Rustler's House. And we had about 40 people turn up, uh, 12 of whom were presenting, and that was considered to be a fairly good turnout, because academic research is often quite niche. And uh, we have people coming from all over Europe, in fact. Um, the conference I've just been to is the International Federation for Theatre Research, and this is a conference that is held every year somewhere in the world. Last year it was Hyderabad in India, this year it was in Stockholm, Sweden, next year it will be in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And there is about 1,090 people speaking at this conference over a five-day period. So it is enormous. It is the biggest conference I've ever been to, and in some ways actually I think it's probably too big because you just get kind of swamped with the amount of material. Within this conference there are working groups, and these are small research clusters where, uh, which focus on a particular aspect of theatre or performance. So there is a queer working group, there is a history and historiography working group, there is a scenography working group, there is an adaptation working group, and the one that I belong to is called Political Performances. And at, it was within Political Performances that this question of affect versus effect kept coming up. Now, I'm going to I'm willing to bet that most of us have used the word affect and the word effect in a variety... I keep saying... I know, I know it's not how you pronounce it, but it just makes it easy to differentiate. If I say affect and effect, then it just sounds... My uh, accent flattens them a bit. So affect versus effect. Uh, I think we've probably used those words quite a lot, but if pushed, we'd maybe find it difficult to define them. I would have done had I not had a certain amount of time to prepare this podcast. Now, affect, for me, and this is not the only definition, this is just the one that I think... Affect is about an internal response to something. So uh, an example of this is the charity adverts, particularly for me, NSPCC charity adverts at Christmas. I've seen them all the way through my life, but in the last couple of years, because I've now got a child, whenever I see those adverts, I immediately connect the images of suffering on the screen with my own child. And this has a powerful, this powerfully affects me. And so much so, in fact, that I've started donating to NSPCC, which is, of course, what the images are designed to do, and I'm therefore being manipulated, but I consider that that's a positive manipulation. So affect is to do with an internal, personal response to a stimulus. Affect cannot be predicted, because there's no way the people that make that, uh, that those uh, adverts could have known me or my child. It can be, in some ways, perhaps imagined if you make a video or an advert which uh, is about the suffering of children you you're pretty certain that it's going to affect parents in a particular way but they, you can't know specifically so to me that's affect it's an individual response to a given stimulus effect is for me the predictable consequence of a process or an operation where the people who are doing the process or the operation can more or less predict what its outcome will be so if you're in a library and you put your finger to your lips and you go, shh, you can more or less predict that that is going to stop somebody talking. Because, you know, they're in a library and the whole politics of space thing, you're not supposed to talk in libraries. So that is an effective way of achieving a particular objective. I hope that this makes sense. The, so for me, effect or effect is the outcome of uh, an action that is predicted and, to a large extent, controlled by the person who commits the action. Affect is an individual response to an action that cannot necessarily be predicted or controlled by the person doing the action. Um, so other examples, I suppose, you might... Uh, let's say you might make a joke, an off-colour joke about death or something, and most people in the room kind of laugh or giggle or whatever, but then one person in the room starts crying and you realise that they're... Parents were both killed in a car crash yesterday. I mean, you could have probably, you know, figured out that 
some people might get upset about a joke about death, but you couldn't necessarily predict the affect that your joke would have upon that spectator. Now, the reason that we're having the debate about affect versus effect is that if we think back to Brecht, um, kind of political theatre of the 1930s, 40s and 50s, or 40s and 50s, then Brecht's theatre was designed to be very effective. Brecht was somebody who wanted his audiences to wake up out of what he thought was a kind of stupor that theatre audiences were often in, and to come together and to have debates about the problems in the world and to then start political actions that would tackle those problems. He was somebody, we must remember, who had lived or was living through Nazism. He was persecuted for being a communist. He fled to America, where he was also persecuted for being a communist. And he had seen the effect that propaganda can have upon a populace. Now, propaganda is uh, a curious genre of performance, I think, in that it is both, it tries to be affective and effective at the same time. And I will talk about this more when we, we get to the United Kingdom Independence Party. But it is certainly something which promotes a narrative. This is what we want you to do. This is what you should be doing. This is the problem. This is the solution. Propaganda is quite a closed loop. It does not op it does not invite an open response from the spectator, but rather it tries to persuade the spectator that there is only one possible response. And of course, Hitler um, and uh, Goering and so on were extraordinarily effective propagandists, and they managed to corral, convince, bully, um, seduce, whatever you want to call it, an entire populace people into a particular narrative. Now, Brecht had seen the effectiveness of this and was trying to tackle this. And one of the ways in which he was trying to tackle this was by producing propaganda of his own. Now, people might argue with me about that. I'm not saying that I think Brecht is bad at all. In fact, I, I've got a big soft spot for Brecht. And I think, you know, it's almost, there's, mm, this is debatable, but he's certainly one of the most influential drama practitioners of the 20th century. And without him, a lot of contemporary drama does not exist. But his approach is now seen in many corners as being quite outdated. It did last for a long time. In the 60s, 70s and 80s, we had what's called agitation propaganda in theatre, which is where people would write political plays in line with a particular political narrative. Almost always left-wing. Not always, though. Tom Stoppard, I think, is a, is an ag is a, 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 a political theatre maker who is of the right. But the majority of British political theatre, at least, uh, is left-wing. And it's relayed particular orthodoxies about left-wing ideology in the hope of inspiring its audience to follow them. Again, this is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, if you are facing particular problems, then trying to inspire people to come together in uh, a group as a community to tackle those problems could even be seen to be a particularly good thing, and perhaps something that we have lost uh, in the 21st century. These are all very noble questions about debate. But after the fall of communism, when there was no longer two big narratives in the world, there was no longer communism versus capitalism, there was just capitalism, the whole notion of political theatre changed and had to evolve and adapt. And it became much more about affect than effect. It became much more about trying to stimulate and provoke an individual response in the uh, spectator than it did about trying to provide a narrative for all the spectators to come together uh, to get behind. And this has more or less remained the case today. There is, of course, still political theatre that, that um, promotes particular narratives, but th I think that that is much less prevalent than it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So we've got this thing about affect and effect. Now, for whatever reason, this became a big topic at the conference that I've just been to, and we had a lot of different uh, papers, some really, really good papers. There was a, a brilliant paper on um, prison theatre. In fact, there was a couple of brilliant papers on prison theatre. One of them was about... Um, prison theatre where people had been uh, producing a Brecht play and it was about can you do anything with Brecht in prisons that is 
that works for the people in prison because they are in a very particular situation. They have been marginalised by society. Um, Brecht is quite outdated now. So how do you how do you do this? How do you do you make Brecht for people in prisons? This was then uh, there was a whole conversation about Brecht in the National Theatre, who are currently staging a production of the Threepenny Opera, um, which has been adapted by Simon Stevens. And the broad consensus in the group was that whilst Simon Stevens' production of the Threepenny Opera, which is the play that we get Mac the Knife from, by the way, looks really good. It doesn't really do anything politically. It doesn't. It's not effective, nor is it affective, according to the people in the group. I've not seen it, so I can't comment. This is what they said. There was somebody else who was talking about what she called necrotheater in Mexico. And necrotheater is uh, the practice of displaying mutilated corpses by uh, cartel members in order to terrify and um, stultify people within uh, Mexico. And... It was, and uh, she was doing this in conjunction with, with prison theatre as well. She, there was this whole terrifying project that had been done with um, juveniles in a Mexican jail where they had been, uh, they, they had performed the Passion of the Christ over the course of a day. And it, it involved the most horrible humiliations of the, of the actors and the, the, the installation of this strange kind of Christian narrative of, of um, punishment. Somebody else uh, was talking about public protest and they referenced this really, I, this completely passed me by, uh, an edict that was passed down by the Turkish Deputy Prime Minister in 2014, which said that Turkey was uh, heading towards a moral decline, and that one of the reasons that for this moral decline was that women were laughing too much in public. So he uh, was then calling for women to stop laughing in public, and the women of Turkey, many many of them, and this is you can find this online. I'll put a link on Facebook. Then started posting pictures of themselves on Twitter, laughing. Which is an excellent, I think, way of trying to protest against an utterly absurd uh, and didactic um, edict. It reminded me, actually, of um, Belgium. When Belgium was, um, when they were, they were searching for Abdeslam uh, in the wake of the Paris attacks, Belgium, I think they closed down Twitter for, for a night or something, or they told people not to post anything on Twitter, and the Belgians responded by posting up lots of pictures of cats. <laughs> Bless them. Um, so, uh, right, so anyway, the, 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 this was what we were talking about with all of these things was how do we measure the uh, success of political performance, whether it's on stage or whether it's in the street? Can political performance be effective anymore? Is it enough that we make stuff that is affective, that doesn't have a narrative or an agenda, but just tries to produce an emotional response or an intellectual response in the spectator? Is that enough? Is it you know, even possible for us to, to have political narratives anymore when so much of the world seems to have um, driven towards the centre. And then, of course, we've got more discussions about how, well, actually, in the last year or so, uh, with what's happened in the United States and what's happened in the United Kingdom, we're seeing more of a return to extreme um, ideological positions on both sides of the spectrum. So it was quite a heated discussion, and in many ways it was a really positive discussion. But there was also this discussion about images and the circulation of images, because we live in a world which is saturated by images, and we many often the time we, we can't actually avoid them. They are presented to us without our consent, and thus and these images work on us. And so what I want to talk about in this image in this podcast, the rest of the show is how do images work on us, and how do we try to understand the way in which images are working on us, and what do images do? Because we do we we know that images can do things. We know that images of child pornography, for example, do something. They are in fact crimes. Um, the, the image itself is a crime. We know that revenge porn does something. I think revenge porn is is a is a, a very good example of uh, a very contemporary example of what an image can do. Revenge porn, of course, is where somebody circulates sexually provocative images of a person against their will, and often as a retaliation against them doing something. Often, you know, it's it's a, a boyfriend whose girlfriend has dumped him, so he's got a picture of her topless, so he sends it around his friends or 
somebody puts it on, on the internet on whatever and it's, it goes viral and then that does something to the person who is, whose image it is it hurts them an image can hurt you and in a world in which an image of you can be sent to the entire world at the click of a switch and can never be taken back the image has attained a huge potency, a huge value, and in many ways has become a hugely powerful weapon to use against people if it is used in a particular way. Now, this is what got me thinking back to Ilan Cody, because I didn't go to, there was a, a keynote speech, which I thankfully didn't go to. The person delivering the keynote speech put up a picture of, and everybody knows the picture, everybody will see in the picture. Once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. It's a picture of Ilan Kurdi, uh, who was a three-year-old Syrian boy of Kurdish ethnic background um, who drowned on September the 2nd, 2015, trying to reach Europe. Um, the, journal, the, the photograph was taken by Turkish journalist Nilufer Demir, quickly spread around the world, prompting international responses. Um, it, well, I mean, I, the first time I saw this image was... Uh, on the Guardian, I think, or the Independent, I'd gone on one night, and there was, uh, it was just there. It was it, they were just using this image, and I couldn't believe that they used this image. I could not believe that they used an image of a dead child to sell their story. I was horrified by it. It did, of course, it promoted. It, it worked. I, 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 you know, donated stuff to the to the Red Cross, but uh, it's something that I find very tricky. And the fact that this person used the image in a, in their speech and apparently put it up on the screen for a long time would have meant that I probably would have walked out of the speech had I been there. At least I hope I would have walked out of it. Because images. Right. We have this, you know, the, the old truism, images speak louder than words. Rubbish. They just talk in a different fashion. They, they talk, words and images have some similarities, but they've also got a lot of differences. Images might have certain advantages over words. Fine. Yes, they are powerfully affective in the way uh, that uh, words perhaps are not. Um, but they also have some weaknesses. And I think one of the biggest weaknesses of images is the fact that they don't really offer much in the way of context. An image can point to something outside of itself. Uh, it can give indications of a past or a future, but it doesn't show them. It does not contain within the image. And it requires the effort of the spectator to go and find out about the context of the image and the, the past and the future. It actually requires an active engagement in order to be able to understand or to begin to understand an image. So when we look at the photo of Ilan Kurdi, we are affected, yes, or at least I hope we are affected, uh, at the emotive level which images of suffering children provoke. We see a human, a human at their most formative, at their most vulnerable and with their greatest amount of potential, and we see them dead in this case, and thus the cost of their death is at their highest. It is, you know, we are affected more by an image of a dead child than we are by, by a dead adult, because a dead adult has, uh, is less vulnerable, I suppose, in some ways, has less potential in terms of life that is stretched out, stretched out in front of them, is less innocent, I suppose, if we think about the innocence of children or whatever. Um, so an image of a child is extremely, profoundly uh, significant to us. But what we do not see unless we are inspired to go and find it by the image itself, in the case of Ilan Kurdi, is the broader issues of the Syrian civil war that have ravaged Syria for six years. Uh, we do not see the geopolitical situations that gave birth to this, uh, you know, to both to Assad's regime and to the rebel factions such as uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and Islamic State that have been fighting that regime. We do not see the international trade agreements, alliances, uh, 
enmities and so on, in whose interest the, civil, the Syrian civil war is being fought and maintained, and we do not see the racial, cultural and economic tensions that trap and brutalise people such as Ilan Cody and his family, whether they stay in their dangerous homelands or whether they uh, make the awful decision to flee and to reduce their status in the world, uh, in the eyes of the world, to, uh, to, to refugee or immigrant. I mean, don't forget that refugees and immigrants are the people that our own Prime Minister calls a swarm. We don't see any of this. What we get instead is an affective image. And if we're being cynical, we could say that, you know, when it was first circulated at least, it was, also, it was also an effective image in some ways, because as I said, I donated to British Red Cross. In fact, British Red Cross reported a huge spike in donations in the days following that photograph's release. Like I said, I've got a son. I have a, a two-year-old son who's not much younger than that boy. And for me, when I saw that photograph, and when I still see that photograph, what I see is a terrified child who loses his father's hands in the dark and who desperately struggles in freezing cold water and whose last moments alive are spent in utter terror, hopelessness, helplessness and alone. That's, to me, it's a thought that is beyond the limits of tolerance. It's a very sad indictment of, uh, on my part, in fact, that this was the first time that I donated to, to the refugee crisis. And that does speak to the power, perhaps, and, and maybe even the necessity of that image or at least the reasons why the image was taken and distributed. Because, you know, they interviewed uh, the photographer and, and they said that there was this kind of agony about whether or not they should take the photograph or not. But they did so precisely because they hoped it would have this kind of effect on the global community, that it would wake us up, that it would uh, remind us of what is often called the human cost of the refugee crisis. And it did, for a while. But images have a lifespan, and I don't just mean their market value. What does a photograph of Jimmy Savile with his arm around a child indicate today? What did it indicate 20 years ago? Same image, completely different interpretation. They have a lifespan, they have a trajectory, they change. And this, I suppose, actually goes against some of what I was saying earlier in terms of uh, an image itself cannot show context. An image itself cannot show context, but it is bound up in a broader, what is called an economy of images, which I'll get to in a moment, which is a kind of collective interpretation of an image. If you were to show an alien, that, you know, what would an alien think, an image of uh, the attacks on 9-11, they would just see two buildings with smoke coming out of them or a plane going into them or whatever. But for everybody, I pretty much would say everybody in the 21st century, that image has a much broader resonance and it then refers to the attacks and also it refers to the war on terror and so on and so forth. So the image of Ilan Cody's dead body was introduced to us as part of a much bigger debate. And although it may have affected us at the level of individuals, and we might have seen it as the plight of a young boy, that was not actually the purpose or the meaning of the image. What it was trying to do was to use that image to reference a broader issue. His family understood this because they immediately tried to halt the circulation of the image by providing one of their own. They had this photograph of him alive at a birthday party. Um, but it was too late, because by that point, he was already known to us as the drowned boy. And any further image that we saw of him was viewed through that lens. And quickly, far too quickly, the narratives surrounding the refugee crisis swung back around and our empathy for the plight of those displaced in the Syrian civil war returned to paranoia and suspicion. The individual refugee with whom we can share a common humanity, was blurred into the vast swarm of people who are heading inexorably this way. So the image of Island Cody's dead body remains, but it has been detached from its original point of reference. We hijacked that image 
we did not see an image of a drowned child. We saw an image of a broader refugee crisis. Now that the debate has moved on and public attitudes to refugees have moved on, what is left of the image? What has it become? Personally, I actually can't stand to see it anywhere anymore because to me it's become symbolic of the worst kind of inhuman exploitation. That we can't even restore the... Um, not honor, what's the word I'm looking for? Dignity of a three-year-old child. We have to, It's used in a broader debate and then that debate moves on and the, the child gets forgotten. So... Uh, in my own, uh, I did a, a paper at this conference, and I, I might talk about that in more detail in a future post. And I was talking about this notion of the visual economy, which is a term that I borrowed from a French theorist called Marie-José Monzin. The visual economy is exactly what I've been describing, the value of images, not in terms of money, but in terms of affect. And effect, I suppose, as well. Which images are the ones that work upon us, and how do we measure that? The advertising industry is, is, is built upon the visual economy. Next time you're in a city centre, have a look around, try and count how many images are presented that are vying for your attention, screaming to speak to you in particular ways. So for a brief period, that photograph of Ilan Cody's drowned body was the image that, in Britain that spoke to the refugee crisis. And since then, like I said, we've moved on. And the image that people are currently talking about is, of course, the one that has recently been unveiled by the leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, Nigel Farage, which is a promotional poster for the forthcoming referendum on Britain's membership of the EU. I have said before, this is not a political podcast, and although my own politics do assert themselves very loudly, I will try not to proselytise. I will also try to calm down. What I'm interested in, in terms of this poster, is the ways in which it enters into the visual economy and what it says about the debates surrounding immigration and our place in the EU. One of the papers at the, at the, con the conference in Sweden referenced an Ipsos Mori survey that has been held over the last couple of decades into what British voters think is the most important issue facing the UK at the moment. 25 years ago, apparently, immigration was not even a factor. It didn't even register on the scale. Today, 50% of the voting public, according to this poll, think that the most important thing facing the UK is immigration. There are, of course, lies, damn lies, and statistics, which I think is a Benjamin Disraeli quote, but, uh, so we'll take it with a pinch of salt. But even you know, accounting for that, this is still an extremely significant development. Immigration has become the hot topic. In fact, it has become, as far as I can see, the only topic left in the EU debate. It's no longer about marketing or uh, the business or trade or international solidarity or whatever. It's about immigration. And this is what Farage is uh, capitalising upon. And it, his poster gives us a lot of indication as to why this might be. For one thing, we've moved from the plight of the individual... Island Cody, with whom we can sympathise or empathise, to a broader homogenous mass, and it is much less easy to sympathise with a mass. For another, the image, which was reportedly taken in Germany last year, shows a largely male, seemingly able-bodied and almost exclusively non-white group of people queued up in a huge line going down a road waiting. Again, the image abjures any sense of context and capitalises upon what is being shown in order to produce a particular sense of affect among the viewing public. We have no idea who these people are. We do not know their situations. We do not know what happened to them after the image was taken. But that does not matter, because the point of the image is to dramatise the other and to indicate the proximity of the other to us. And that's, that's curious as well, because the, the text on the image is breaking point. The EU has failed us all. Us all, which is an interesting statement, because it clearly does not include people of particular ethnic or cultural backgrounds, some of whom may in fact be British citizens. What it what it's doing is trying to identify and um, exclusivize a spectatorship. It is aimed at a particular 
group of people and it is aimed, it is trying to bring them together. It's doing that thing that propaganda does, which is that it tries to pr pr promote a particular narrative to a particular group of people. What is also significant is the way in which these uh, the, the image is being distributed, um, this poster. So, of course, it already has a strong online presence and, and it's been proliferated on social media, newspaper websites and so on. But it's also being deployed in public, on the side of vans and on billboards. I've managed... I'm gonna. I'll try and stop myself getting angry. But this is something that, you know, f even aside from everything else, this notion of hijacking public spaces in order to try to, in order to use affective images, is something that I find particularly vile. We cannot stop m people making posters or images and distributing them, unless, of course, those posters and images constitute a breaking of the law. Now, there is actually a debate going on at the moment as to whether or not Nigel Farage's poster constitutes hate speech and therefore commits a crime, uh, and it might do, and if it is, it'll be withdrawn, but that won't matter because it will already have been shown to us. And even if, you know, but uh, until that's decided, he is free to make and distribute these posters as he sees fit because he's got the money to do so. That means that he has the power to affect spectators, whether we want him to or not, by turning our lived environments into his stage. Without our consent, our public spaces are turned into stages for people who wish to try to manipulate our responses in particular ways. Now, we can try to avoid looking at things on the internet, although it's not always particularly easy. But we cannot walk around our towns and cities with our eyes closed. And we can't take them down. I can't even advocate graffiti on this podcast because that would be a crime because the law would protect those who put the posters up rather than those who try to obscure them. So I think, therefore, that it is of paramount importance that we consider images with which we are being presented as seriously, as sensibly, and as dispassionately as humanly possible, which is why I'm trying to stop myself getting angry. And we should really try to understand the ways in which they seek to work upon us. It's a very simple point, and maybe it's too simple, but I think it seems necessary of course, there is also, you know, there's a broader discussion that we should be able to collectively gain control of our public spaces. They are public, after all. Why should only those with money uh, get a say in what's displayed in them? I, I, the, my final thought for this show, just to try and come up with something positive, is imagine what would the world be like if anybody who wanted to put up a poster designed to affect the spectator had to gain a majority vote from those who lived or worked on that street? Or, even better, what about the decoration of a, of a street being only the province of those who live and work there? I mean, you know, some streets would end up being more prettily decorated than others if they had a larger proliferation of artists, and some streets would obviously then have particular political narratives upon them, but I don't know, personally I would feel a lot more comfortable than, with that than with somebody who I've never met who has views that, you know, I, I can't challenge them on, I can't debate with them, being able to co-opt my lived environment in order to promote their own particular views. And that, I think, is something that, you know, we've seen a lot of in the recent debates in the EU referendum. Anyway, that's the end of the show. I did, I warned you that it was going to be sad, and I'm sorry that it was sad, but hopefully um, this discussion of affect and um, fighting images has been useful. Uh, I have a correction to issue. Uh, my mother listened to uh, the episode on general disobedience, and she reminded me that seed bombing is a wonderful thing, but you should only use flowers that are native to that area. Um, because if you use flowers that are not native to that area, you risk uh, disrupting the ecosystem of that particular area. So the best thing she suggested is to go around the, any area that you want to seed bomb, collecting seeds from flowers that are already germinated, and then they use these in your bombs. So there you go, there's my, my correction. I, I, the first correction I think I've received on the podcast, and it's from my mother. <laughs> anyway, um, 
the another how piece of housekeeping as you may have noticed we started by saying uh, a podcast about theatre and performance based in Scotland because I think as we go along this is evolving or devolving into something other than what I initially intended for it to be but we're going well, I'll call this a podcast that is about theatre and performance based in Scotland um Finally, uh, and as always, if you've uh, enjoyed this show, please give a listen to State of the Theory podcast. Oh, and please share us on Facebook and like us on iTunes and stuff. But yeah, listen to State of the Theory, which is uh, a podcast examining contemporary events through the lens of critical theory. The theme song is Polly Edwards' One More Broke Poet. Her website is brokepoet.com. And thanks, as ever, to Kuldeep Panasar for producing and editing this show. Have beautiful days and be very good to each other. So fly.